Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast recorded live on Wednesday, January 17th, 2018, as a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. Renowned scholar and conductor Leon Botstein and curator Barbara Haskell joined Dale Gregory, New York Historical's Vice President for Public Programs, to discuss American art and music during World War II. And now, enjoy the podcast. I think it's our fourth time together we've done. So every year they come and it's wonderful. So Leon and Barbara, I I thought what I would do is pose four questions to you, which go well with some of the artwork in the catalog. Um, And the two of you can just start the dialogue and I'll jump in every once in a while. But um, I thought we could start with something that caught my eye as I was looking over the work of Arthur Schick in a Canadian journal in the Halifax Herald, July 13th, 1940. There was a headline, famed Polish artist has a price on his head. And there was a photo of Arthur Schick, his wife and daughter, and the caption read, Arthur Schick, renowned Polish artist, whom Hitler regards as one of Germany's most dangerous enemies, arrived in Canada yesterday to begin a lecture tour of the Dominion and the United States. He is shown above with his daughter, Alexandria, and his wife, Julia. His son, George, is with General de Gaulle in London. So I I will get back to asking Leon to answer this. I just want to give everyone a heads up of where we might go tonight. Uh, with the other three questions. Um, Schick, who was born in 1894 and lived till 1951, lived in New York City in the 40s and 50s. So we're going to ask Barbara, what were the close ties that joined him to abstract expressionist painting in the New York school? Um, The third question, how did democratic values and the idea of justice inform his work? And what were the subjects that drew him to represent and express these ideals, and who was the audience for Arthur Schick, and who was the audience for the abstract expressionist? We'll get to some of these, um, because I know, Leon, you have a lot to tell us. Um, Could you talk about Schick's life and career up to the moment of this price on his head in 1940, um, which brought him to Canada and the United States, and how you came to know the Schick family? So um, uh, when um, the New York Historical Society uh, announced it was going to do an Arthur Schick exhibit, um, uh, for me, just personally, uh, Arthur Schick was a close friend of my grandfather's and my uncle's. Uh, And so I grew up uh, knowing about Schick when we came to America in the end of 1949. I actually have in my home the... uh, his illustration of the Declaration of the State of Israel, uh, dedicated to my father, uh, signed by Schick, and there was one for my grandfather who survived ghetto and camp. Uh, the, uh, my uncle was quite close to him uh, uh, in the 30s when he returned to Lodge. So Schick comes from a textile manufacturing family. 
Um, and my grandfather and great-grandfather were in that business in large as well. And so they knew each other through that. Uh, my grandfather was about 10 years older than Arthur Schick, my uncle about 10 years younger. Um, then they were both in the 30s. My uncle was active in the Kerut, in the Betar, in the uh, Jabotinsky movement. And uh, you'll see in the book exhibits um, illustrations that he made of um, Trumpeldor and also the sort of... Uh, he, was, he had some association with the Jabotinsky, the right wing of the, the revisionists of the Zionists. And um, so my uncle, he gave my uncle um, two um, uh, early drafts for the Haggadah, one of the Exodus of Egypt and the other of the Four Questions. What's unusual about the one that we have, which my brother now has, uh, is that the snake or the M has... Uh, the Nazi, the swastika in it, which in the final version was eliminated. My uncle was killed in the Warsaw Ghetto in, in 43. Um, so there are some Warsaw Ghetto uprising uh, exhibits, uh, illustrations that Schick did. So Schick was a kind of a household name in my family, and my grandfather probably supported him financially and the work on the Haggadah in the 30s. So it was, you know, and but he's a totally forgotten figure, by the way, um, uh, I never met anybody who knew anything about him uh, uh, until Irving Unger. Um, I ran to Irving Unger in L.A. about a decade ago, and he really is responsible for the Schick revival and deserves a lot of credit for it. Um, Schick was a complicated man. Um, on the one hand, uh, and it's, you can see it in the work, he, he is a kind of mirror image of the complex situation of being a Jew in Poland. Um, in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, and especially during the independent years of Poland from 1918 to 1939, the outbreak of the war. This was very complicated. We think of Polish Jewry primarily as shtetl, Hasidim, uh, in small towns in the Pale. But in places like Warsaw or Lodz, there were a, a large number of highly assimilated Polish-speaking quite Polish patriotic Jews of high economic standing, and Schick belonged to that group. So he was actually uh, uh, served in, with Pilsudski and, was, um, and uh, was part of the triumphant defeat of the Soviets in 1920-21 in the Soviet-Polish War. And you will see illustrations which are, uh, in a way, glorify, if you will, the possibilities of Polish independent nationality. It's interesting that the clipping you read from calls him a Polish artist. Um, but because a large majority of the Jewish population in Poland, over 3 million Jews, um, had very little to do with Polishness. But the, uh, there was an educated elite to which my uncle was a member who were Polish-speaking, Polish patriots. His friend, Julian Tuvim, the great Polish poet, was also Jewish. There was a Jewish elite that became crucial to the creation of modern Polish culture. And so he was partly a Polish patriot. At the same time, he was an ardent Zionist, um, actually a right-wing Zionist, um, believed in the self-defense in the post-Kishinev pogrom revival of the notion of Jews defending themselves against the brutality of anti-Semitism. Then he was a big American patriarch. We have all this Washington. He became a huge sort of Roosevelt liberal American and embraced the possibilities of America. Um, and then, of course, a very strong, ongoing, uh, deep-seated Jewish identity, which was um, uh, not religious, but secular religious, so the Haggadah, uh, 
you know, hugely sympathetic to the birth of the state of Israel, a kind of strange cosmopolitan mixture of political allegiances, very nostalgic, uh, uh, wish we would have people who were as committed to a kind of amalgam, international amalgam of liberal ideals, uh, uh, which ultimately he was. Anti-fascist, during the period of the alliance, there are even illustrations which are very pro-Soviet. So um, a very tolerant, uh, uh, very humanistic. um, uh, One of the great illustrations is the De Profundis illustration uh, that was for the Chicago Papers of 1943, where you see the victims of the Nazis, Jews, and in that pile of almost corpses and real corpses, there is the figure of Jesus Christ holding the Ten Commandments. Um, it's something very eloquent. Um, so for me, the Arthur Schick is a fa- not out of the history books. So, um, uh, so I'm, I'm thrilled that there is an exhibit, I think the first in my adult lifetime, of the work of Arthur Schick. You know, when you're a kid and your parents tell you about this famous artist, my grandfather too, you sort of discount what they tell you. It's a tall tale, you know. I knew about Arthur Schick, but nobody else ever heard of Arthur Schick. And, uh, you know, and so I was relatively modest about, you know, um, I didn't tell the kid on the playground, my dad knows Arthur Schick, you know. Uh, uh, there was no reason to tell a joke like that. So it was really amazing. Uh, and I'm thrilled that, uh, and no better time than in Trump's America to... Uh, Revive a liberal voice um, uh, of such uh, of such. So that gift. gives me an entree. <laughs> so I'm the American side of this discussion. Um, and what's interesting, I mean, Schick's the whole idea about soldier and art raises the question about art. How how can art be a tool of politics? How can it be in the service of social justice? And I think I think as art raises that question. But one of the things that happened in in, in the United States leading up to America's entry in the war was not um, was a sense about what 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 the country had to lose if we were attacked. And Roosevelt, for example, in 1940, in his speech to Congress, he talked about, you know, it's not about, it's not weapons alone that, it, that, that our security depends on. It's the will of the people who really want to defend what we call the American way of life. And during that period, most of the artists and most of the governmental organizations began to to create idealized images of what it meant to be an American, a very idealized kind of um, imaginary, mythical America. So you think of people like Grant Wood, who I'm working on right now, and he talked about, um, he cited Roosevelt and said, you know, artists really have to come to the fore and we have to create images of what, what people stand to lose if they're not willing to defend the country. We have to revive patriotism in a non-chauvinistic way in order to really encourage people to to fight. There was a big, you probably know the government was very involved in in WPA projects, murals all around the country. But the uh, Farm Security Administration sent out photographs into the South. And those photographs during the 30s were very, um, they really sought to depict the hardships that the that Southerners were facing in order to allow the government to um, 
to fund different projects. It was really kind of a, a political arm of the government in a way. Fabulous photographs. You probably all know um, a number of, you know, those are the great photographs, Dorothea Lange, Walker Evans, that we think of as the great 30s documentary photographs. But by 1930, that, a- that agency had shifted focus altogether, and they had they had instructed the photographers that worked for them to go into American cities and do- document the American way of life. There's a great quote I have by the head of the agency who told one photographer, do you think I give a damn about a photographer's, photographer's soul with Hitler at our doorstep? We want pictures of men and women who appear as if they really believed in America. And that was what happened in the lead up to the to the war in America, which I think is is kind of interesting as a counter to what Schick was doing. Yeah, Schick, I mean, what's really about Schick is that he's where where it's so caricatured. In other words, that that um, the his art is not in a way designed to convince you, but to depict the evil you already know is there. Well, you have to almost know the evil. Uh, I mean, political art is very difficult. After after America entered the war, there were several artists that, that actually stepped up. Thomas Hart Benton, for example, did these very horrific series called The, the Year of the Peril, where he depicted you know, Nazis stabbing babies and Japanese soldiers eating young children and raping women. They were just horrific. Uh, we look at them now and they seem just so over the top. But they were on stamps. They were whole exhibitions around the, sent around every city around the country. They were filmed and part of the newsreels that were being shown in, in movie theaters. That, but there wasn't any ambiguity about it. You didn't have to know anything. And you looked at these pictures and you thought something terrible could be happening. So I think what Schick was involved in the same thing. He was embodying visually in great graphic detail the horror and the shock of what these people represented, what Nazism represented. Um, and, uh, but there is something I always found that um, the sort of decorative quality, the, the unbelievable detail. And when you think he becomes American, there are these George Washington series. There's also a, a series about England. In a funny way, um, everything has a kind of very distinctive, almost medieval quality. It's, well, it's very medieval. When you think about, there is a four. He did Schick did a series of four freedoms, um, and when you compare them to say Norman Rockwell's four freedoms, which are very specific, there you know you know what they are. In Schick's case, they're all a medieval figure, and you almost have to read the 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 legend to know that it's about. What, what the four freedoms are. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not a criticism. It's, no, it's not, it's a, not a, criticism. a criticism. No, he's so, de- it's these decorative embellishments, he, under, he understands and adopts in a modern way the, the Ill- illustrated manuscript tradition. But they are very decorative, very embellished, and you have to really spend time reading the image to know what it is that he's trying to argue against. But I think you put your finger on it. I think that what distinguishes Schick is that he is... His great moment is in the tradition of the illustrated manuscript. That's what makes the Haggadah, for example, uh, his most enduring work. The ability to illustrate words. This is something we don't anymore think about. It is an artist of a reader. You asked about Mm -hmm. his audience. The best audience for Schick 
And that's why it fit on the cover of Time magazine or Collier's or in something you read, an article you read about something, and then the visualization. We have given up on the idea of illustration, but that's what he was great. He was one of the great illustrators of all time. And we often think, if I can read, why do I need an illustration? But actually, the illustration does augment the act of reading. And so when Schick comes into contact with words, it, it, the, the inspiration opens up. And, um, and that is, uh, so that's what distinguishes, I think, Schick from just a, an ordinary painter. Right. No, I think you, he's best when he, when he joins his visual imagination with words. So the Haggadah, for example, is, is brilliant when he, when he illustrates the Haggadah. But so, it does, I mean, it's interesting because in thinking about, well, what, what does make effective propaganda or effective, what, what, will it, what kind of images will impel a, a public to act? And you think about in World War II, the, the images that were the most compelling were made by photogra- photographers. You know, you get, those are the images that, that, are, that are seared into our minds. When we think about the Vietnam War, the exhibition that yeah, well, is what in the Yeah, what do you make of, for example, the people that did all the posters like Kerner and Ben Sean? So the World War II posters were also unbelievably powerful. Ben Sean did one called This is Nazi Brutality that showed somebody in a tiny container, very claustrophobic, with a uh, hood over their face. And then the, the legend of that was that, you know, the Nazi message that all the men of Lidice were to be executed and the women were to be sent to camp. So World War II posters were, were very powerful, very strong. And the Kerner ones, too, he was mm-hmm. also... He's similar to Schick in some way, because he did a lot of illustrations as well for magazines, didn't he? John Stuart Curry? No, the Kerner. Oh, mm-hmm. So, the first name is um, Henry, I think. Right. So this, he was somebody who, who was... An emigre as well. An emigre from Vienna, um, who then was, because he spoke German, he was sent over during the war to be a... a a translator went back to Vienna after the war and discovered that his family had been wiped out. And the pictures that he made after that are very powerful about the kind of tragedy and the terror of the, hu- the uncertainty of the human condition. See, when I, the last thing I would say about Schick is that, to me, he, he mirrors back this tra- tragedy of European Jewry. Um, the belief that one could successfully become part of European culture and that the, the sort of dissolution of that illusion is heartbreaking. And uh, uh, it, um, it is, uh, and the, the mixture, the sort of the, uh, of, of uh, complex allegiances, um, especially the Polish patriotism that gets given modern Polish politics, particularly, um, the you- sort of, unrequited um, uh, enthusiasm. I mean, I wonder if it, what you would say, I mean, because he's identified with that kind of noble Polish tradition, I wonder if you think that there's any interest or that it would, it's interesting to compare um, to the the images of African-Americans that were happening at the same time in the anti-lynching images that, that were being produced. Well, he himself does some, interestingly, that in, he becomes very interested in, there are, there's, there are several ones in the exhibit which, show, uh, which really show the, the oppression of the African-American with Ku Klux Klan. And there's no doubt that I, um, 
I think he would be sympathetic to something which uh, uh, is something which this country still has to unravel, which is coming to terms with the post-Civil War uh, violence uh, to the African-American community. uh, uh, um, I mean, the Jews in Poland in some ways are like the African-Americans in America. In a way, yes. Never quite being part of the society, certainly in the the pre-World War II. And there certainly there was immediate mm-hmm. post-war violence, mm-hmm. but he he doesn't deal with that. Um, but, but he's an he, interesting he, political figure. He did embrace American values totally. when he came here. So and that's his, the other thing is that it's another example of America becomes a, an unbelievable, unanticipated dream. I mean, I speak for I would say a hundred percent of the emigrant community that came to America, which oddly enough I'm part of as well. That for for this European Jewry, especially for Polish Jewry, um, America was un- an unbelievable place, a place in which, um, partly because we're white, um, where being Jewish was suddenly, by any reasonable comparison, totally irrelevant. And that um, it was a country where one suddenly felt um, one could be an equal and uh, where one could possibly overcome discrimination, which was the post-war experience. And the ideals, the four freedoms particularly, uh, what Roosevelt represented as America. Um, And it is interesting that this exhibit comes up now when there's a huge revival of nativist white nationalism in the country, um, which wants to retell the story of America not as a hospitable place to a variety of cultures and... um, and peoples, uh, but as a kind of a essentialist nativist narrative, uh, which is um, unimaginable uh, for someone of Schick's generation. For Schick, America was kind of a, the land of tolerance and freedom and uh, welcomeness, where citizenship was not a function of where you were born, nor of the color of your skin, nor of your religious conviction, um, but was... Um, uh, an equality under the law, a rule of law. And, uh, I mean, it, the distance we've traveled in the wrong direction is astonishing. And he illustrated that with the founders, uh, portraits of founders, George Washington, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this, Kosciuszko? Kosciuszko, yes, and there's a Pulaski, uh, too. Those are the, Ameri- th- the those Poles are- who fought in the American Revolution. Yeah, And have illuminated manuscripts within these, some of these portraits. Um, and then there's a very powerful portrait of his wife, Julia, in a Renaissance format, um, as you would have had a royal uh, portrait of a woman or the Virgin Mary, um, but she has a Jewish star on her. Right. Well, it's interesting that the, the embrace of America, the dealing with such um, strong issues, that it was all, it, in his case, it was really filtered through a very older tradition. He wasn't, wasn't filtering it through a tradition of realism that was active at the moment. He was, he was translating those very powerful themes through the lens of a medieval yeah, but Technique, you, even re- Renaissance, illuminated What you think, I never thought of this. So he was in Paris, right, in the 20s and before moving back to Lodz. So he was in Poland. Then he, went, he spent a good deal of time in Paris. Were there other artists who were working in this kind of um, 
vain? I mean, there's, is there something there's something quite distinctive about it? But are there people who are well, there were, comparable? There weren't any artists that were looking that were whose work looked like an illuminated manuscript. There were artists in the surrealist camp who had embraced very um, meticulous description. Right. When you think about Salvador Dali, for example, and that that uh, il- illustrational brand of surrealism, but there was nobody whose work looked like something from another period of time. Now, wasn't he illustrating the Hebrew Bible when he was a very young man? I I thought I read that somewhere. That he had illustrated the Bible? When he was very young, he he did drawings uh, in the family home of the Bible, and I think that's when his father decided he should go to art school. Yeah, You know, illustration is a funny thing for among in Jewry because there is this sort of... uh, very every second person will tell you that uh, there is something about graven images in the in the theology of Judaism that uh, uh, that uh, an interdiction to graven images. This is um, simplified; it's not so simple. Um, but there is no doubt that uh, in the Western tradition, the illustration of um, of religious both history by biblical history, let's say. Um, is a very important aspect. And what distinguished Jewry, especially in the Middle Ages, uh, is that by and large, the Jewish community was literate in a way that the Christian community was not. So in a Christian cathedral or Christian church, the illustration of the stories of the Bible, um, of the apostles, of the miracles of Jesus, um, the Bible wasn't being read by the faithful. In the Jewish tradition, literacy was an essential part of of prayer, that but, in order to truly be religious, you had to pray. In order to pray, you had to read. And, and that was uh, so much a part of his work, literature. That's part of his yeah. work. So it's not surprising that um, that one of the impetus, in a way, an impetus to illustration. One of the most popular books, you asked about the audience, one of the most famous and important books in the distribution of literacy in Europe in the mid-late 19th century was by Gustave Doré the great French illustrator and painter. And his illustration of the Bible was uh, an, a very important and very popular. And this kind of pop, traditional popular illustration was part of middle-class educated households. So getting these illustrated books, um, particularly Doré is famous in this regard, um, especially in Eastern Europe. And uh, so um, he may have gotten the idea of illustrating the Bible from a model of that, which might have been Gustave Doré. When he was young. Yeah. So how, how do we contrast his work and whether, and also to know, did he know some of these artists with someone like uh, de Kooning, Franz Klein? Um, well, I mean, the Norman reality, Rockwell. Yeah, he didn't know Norman Rockwell. I mean, I would say that by the time de Kooning, Pollock, Rothko, all of these artists, that he was the absolute opposite of whatever they, what the kind of art that they thought was valid. Right, right. Uh, one, they they believed at that point there had been a, a kind of sense that art and politics had to be separate, um, and the art and they were much more at that point. You know, those artists certainly by the time the end of World War II and then the 
dropping of the bomb, that those were artists who really believed that that what they had to depict in their work and communicate was a sense of uncertainty, apprehension, and terror. But it was it was terror that was as as I said at one point in one of their statements. The only valid subject matter is that which is tragic and timeless. So the idea of this time, these time-bound stories, these specific stories, was something that was anathema to them. And they really wanted to create, that's why they looked at primitive myths, the idea that, that in, in primitive myths there was this, this expression of the presence of, of horror and terror and anxiety and uncertainty of life. So that he would have, was the absolute opposite of what was going on in the 40s and 50s. Now, wasn't so much of their work and the modernists that followed to the postmodern so much about the creation of work, process, the content of the materials, um, rather than illustrating something? Uh, well, right. Yeah. So they were much more involved in the spontaneous gesture yeah. and the art coming out of nothing. The idea of starting with a specific idea and very painstakingly creating an image, again, was something that they were totally against. You also have taken account that in 1951, when Schick died, so um, it was the beginning of the Cold War. And with the Cold War, interestingly, whatever realist tradition survived the New Deal in America and uh, the World War, which also was social, so-called social realism in Soviet Russia, took a turn of disrepute. I mean, this very realist, illustrative art was championed by the fascists in Italy and in Germany and by the Soviets. And modernism, abstraction, and this formalism uh, became associated with freedom and the free world. And the West, it's a very bizarre as it was in music as well. Atonality. Um, uh, Shostakovich was kind of socialist, realist, party art. Um, and romantic, illustrative music was associated with the Nazi regime. And modernism, radical modernism, the kind of things that you no audience member likes, were emblems of freedom, of our free society. Very ironic, just as... You know, people said, you know, it's just black on black. You know, what, what is this? Uh, abstraction is a kind of joke. Or Jackson Pollock, any kid can do so and does so in the nursery school. Well, actually, the government sent, the, sent exhibitions Absolutely. of abstract expressionism around the world as a way to, to show how America represented yeah. freedom, that you could make any kind of art you wanted here. And the very act of making art that was untainted by literature and politics was, 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 was uh, revolutionary in itself. That yeah. was the, so the art Leon you don't want was showed your freedom, the right mm-hmm. not to buy it or see it, uh, as opposed to... <laughs> Populist art. Right. You know, this was a no. it was an ironic twist, right. which we don't want to remember. Uh, but um, <laughs> it, but it certainly would have made Schick, who died fifty one, uh, made Schick's totally a kind of a regressive. Uh, I think the surrealist thing that you point out is is that that's always I had the impression as a child already that if you looked at someone like Telechev or what the what you call that really very finely grained surrealistic. Um, quasi-realism has something to do with Schick. There's something about Schick's figures that always seemed magical, not quite real. Very muscular. Very muscular. All his characters are very muscular. 
like car- a little caricature. I think the difference yeah. between um, what what I think you're saying is something that was called magic realism, which was very crisp edges and and sort of slightly irrational scenes, is that they were much more. Uh, there was much more clarity about what the image was. I think that Schick's work seems uh, characterized in a very good way by a density of images and a profusion of embellishments and every, you know, the figures are caught up in these dense foliage and, um, and that wasn't true of, of you know, the what, magic realists and the surrealists. Where Schick is historically interesting for me is that he has absorbed, there are two images in the show of his sort of showing the Wagnerian as Nazi. But the interesting thing is he's the generation that venerated Wagner's idea of the total work of art. So in in visual arts, for example, if you go across the park to um, the Neue Galerie, right, which is not competition for the New York Historical, (laughs) you will see Klimt, right? And Klimt is, the canvas is totally full. There's not an empty spot. And there's a lot of decoration. And everything is decorated. And the space and also the interior design. You know, everything is detailed, finely, ornamentally detailed in decoration. The interior is completely controlled. And he has that in his, he's got every space filled. He's kind of, the sort of total work of art, that the work is completely engrossing. Um, And that, I think, that aesthetic of highly ornamental, decorative Mm -hmm. aesthetic Mm -hmm. has a connection to Jugendstil and Art right. Deco. I mean, it was what tended to get eliminated in what we call modernism. Right, right. Decoration got, ornament right. got decor- right. knocked out. Now, did Arthur Schick and, and the family um, listen to any particular kind of music that they, did you know because you knew the family? I, I wouldn't know. I, if I had to guess, mm-hmm. um, so he was in, in Lodge. When he returned to Lodge, uh, the uh, Lodge had an orchestra. The conductor was Paul Kletsky, became a very famous conductor. I would guess that the repertoire, that I can gather from my grandfather's taste, was particularly anti-modernist. It was, first of all, in the center of any Polish shoes repertoire was Chopin. And um, then the classics, which would have been from Bach. No one listened to any Renaissance or pre-Baroque music. Uh, would have been von Bach uh, to Brahms. Um, and could have been Wagnerian or anti-Wagnerian, but Strauss would have considered a decadent, Richard Strauss, ugly, decadent music, um, uh, unlistenable, uh, and Mahler would have been excessive. They didn't pay any attention to that. Their, their listening would have been um, romantic, classical music of the 19th century. Now, when he was a young student and went to Paris... What might he have heard then? Oh, in Paris, he would have heard, um, uh, yeah, he would have heard, well, the, a lot of Russian music because Diaghilev came in the early part of the century to Paris with Boris and with uh, Rimsky and uh, not so much Tchaikovsky. And then they would have heard um, uh, late 19th century French music, which was uh, post-Wagnerian, Ducasse, Chausson, early Debussy, um, very highly um, coloristic music. I think they, he would have been, uh, uh, then the coloristic aspect of the work, uh, especially with Rimsky and someone like Stravinsky, you can hear in The Firebird or in Debussy, um, a, a very rich palette of colors. 
and of um, of sounds. Now, did you know him when he was here? In Did I? Yeah. Oh, I was too young to know okay. anything. Uh, uh, he died when I was a baby, you know. Um, so I knew of him as a kind of, I say, legendary figure. I heard my grandfather talk about him. And because my uncle was a hero, rescued the family, was killed in the ghetto during the uprising, that um, those two Haggadah plates hung in my home in the Bronx when we came to the country. And they were an object of fascination because they were dedicated in, in Polish, there was a dedication unto them to my uncle, who was killed. And uh, so um, it was somehow, Schick was somehow associated with the whole image of, a, of a, a past that I only knew through retelling, not directly. Mm-hmm. Now, back to the 50s artists um, here in America. What now... They were. He was here in 1948. I believe uh, Schick became a citizen in 1948. So what might he have felt or thought about the current arts that were happening or beginning to happen here in New York, do you think? Well, it's hard, it's hard to know. Yeah. I mean, there were certainly a lot of things going on that he, that he would have responded to. But my guess is just as if he didn't like modernist music, that it, he would have responded to more realistic, uh, real, realistic representational art that was still being done. Yeah. It wasn't when was the Jewish Museum show that was famous with a Gorky in that show? When did the Jewish Museum show in New York those modernists? Right, it was later. Later. Yeah, after he died. Okay, I, yeah. I do have some questions mm-hmm. if you're ready. You ready? Uh, why was Hitler so adverse to modernist art? That's, that's, an easy, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's kind of a softball question. <laughs> um, so um, Hitler believed that um, modernism undercut fundamental values of family, community, and the tie to the myth of a, of a consistent race. Modernism was cosmopolitan, not local, and therefore it eroded the idea of uh, the German, and which was emblazoned in his mind in the Wagnerian reutilization of myth. So realism uh, and uh, comprehensibility um, and uh, monumentalism uh, of a kind of a a community-building kind, that modernism was degenerate and was destructive of tradition, which he associated his radical agenda. And um, second, a sociological reason, that modernism was the corrupting influence of Jewry. The Jews were an international conspiracy that bled authentic communities of their cohesion, were like a disease that crept into a coherent organic society and split it apart. So it was um, uh, the opposition to modernism was an opposition very different from the Soviet. The Soviets embraced modernism right after the revolution. Constructivism, as you can see from the tomb of Lenin in Red Square. It was Stalin who reintroduced a neo-nationalist agenda and 
sort of put socialist realism into the forefront. But the Nazis, the fascists, were always um, regressive, uh, holding on to the illusions and the techniques of realism, both in music, in literature, and in in painting. And uh, modernism was viewed as corrosive and emblematic of a cosmopolitan and particularly Jewish degeneracy. Okay. <laughs> In a nutshell. Yes. Okay. Now here's a simple question that you touched on. Was Schick educated as a Pole or a Jew? Oh. Or both? Both. Okay. So uh, both. I think he got what I would view to be, he was obviously fluent in Hebrew, so he got a good Jewish education, but unlike most Poles, in this upper class that he was part of, he got a perfectly uh, terrific uh, Polish education, which is why modern Polish literature owes so much to the Polish elite, Polish-Jewish elite that, um, uh, of Poland. Now, he was listed in the House of Un-American Activities Committee because now I'm, I I remember reading something and I can't quite connect it, but the question is: Did Schick's drawings of the plight of African Americans in 1944-1946 lead to his being listed? I mean, I think uh, his mm-hmm. depiction of the of the oppression of the American black uh, in the 40s. I remember that the the even the armed services were segregated, um, and. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, look, Schick's convictions uh, to be called a subversive uh, uh, and to be called in the question about a house of American activities in retrospect is a badge of honor. Was he ever asked to testify? Excuse me? Was he ever asked to I testify? I don't know that. Oh, I mean, I Irving Unger would know. Yeah. Uh, I, w- I don't know whether he ever went down to Congress. Yeah. Uh, um, and I, I doubt whether it was just his his support of African-Americans because there were a host of American artists who, as I said, created anti-lynching images yes. and they weren't asked to testify. So that was... And probably other associations. Mm. And- he did some pro-Soviet illustrations as well, yeah. which in retrospect... Um, that uh, might have gotten him into yeah, more got, trouble. Got in trouble yeah. <laughs> okay, here's another question. What contemporary artists, if any, credit Arthur Schick as their inspiration behind their own work? Were there any... I can't think of any, yeah. to be perfectly honest. I mean, it's a very particular kind of work that he does. It's terrific, but it's very idiosyncratic and unique. Now, I'm not quite... Let, let me try this question. How did Schick trend the line between brutal realism and unconvincing caricature in his anti-Nazi and post-war liberal campaigning? How did he do this so well? Is that a question? Read it again. <laughs> get that How did she trend the line between brutal realism and unconvincing, unconvincing caricature? Let's leave that unconvincing. Brutal realism and caricature in his anti-Nazi and post-war liberal campaigning. How did he do it? He, he just was talented. Um, please speak about Schick's postcards can we do that you have to get the book I think his postcards his postcards is this something I know nothing about no we'll we'll 
I know nothing about the postcards. Okay. Now this is... Although what's interesting, yeah. I have to say that this is ironic, but um, you probably don't know that in, in late 19th, early 20th century Germany, there was a, a food extract... You know how you got bubblegum cards? If you had baseball cards, you know, there was a yes. whole genre. People collected them. Um, and I didn't. But they, I knew that there were people who did. And um, in the Germans had a marketing scheme where they had illustrated postcards of all the Wagner operas and Wagner's life. And you collected them. And they were in this um, food extract product. And they're now collector's items, and they're very similar. I just, just the question made me think this that they were beautifully illustrated. Um, actually, we have several of them. We've framed, and they're quite beautiful and very brilliant colors. And uh, they were, and you collected them. That made you buy the product. You know, we put Skippy peanut butter. You got. Act one, scene one of Valkyrie, then you bought peanut butter number two. But and you got- even, more to, even more similar are some of the illustrations that people did on tarot cards that were very embellished and decorative. Yes. You know, there would be an image in the center, the way a chic piece is, and then very decorated and filled. The, image, the card would be filled with foliage and faces and various things. Well, but- I think he did, every, he did stamps. He did all kinds of... Uh, stamps, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. You know, one of the losses of uh, FedEx and Internet buying is the destruction of the post office. And that itself probably I don't have much nostalgia about. But the elimination of stamps as, a, as an object of beauty and collecting. Okay, let's see what else we have here. I don't know if we... I, the beginning of this, I, I can already say, I'm not sure we can do this. Can you touch, oh, at all on American literature during World War II, what themes were present. Will people still, or, or can you do that? A literature or, that does what? Literature during World War II, of the, what themes were present in literature during World War II. Well, okay. interesting, I think, I mean, you could, you could speak too, but in, in terms of the visual arts and I think in terms of the literary art as well, that most of the, of the, the, war, the books on war came after the, after the war was yeah. over. No book was being written during the war. It was always a reflective, to, to, in the visual arts as well. You think of somebody like Jacob Lawrence who did a war series in the late, late 40s, um, a number of other people that would that would reflect on the war. It took, takes a. It would be interesting which writing. of the war correspondents <laughs> mm-hmm. might have been influential, but I think that uh, novels during the war. Yeah, I, I would agree. They were unlikely. Mm-hmm. And there were films during the war, yes. right? And the government um, made films. The yes, government very, yeah. made mm-hmm. very important films. Yeah. What period of art during the 20th century do you think had the most protest art? Mm. I would say that there were, there were the two main periods. One was in the 30s. There was a tremendous amount of protest art in the 30s. People like Ben Sean, the you know, Mexican muralists had provided this example of the idea that art could be used as a social weapon, uh, Diego Rivera said. And all around the country, there were artists who picked up that cause and created art about social justice and, and against inequality. Uh, there was a huge number of, of artists who were involved in the in anti-lynching campaigns, there were several attempts at Congress to, to 
to um, pass anti-lynching bills, which of course failed. And the artist really rose to the occasion of, of, of depicting just horrific scenes. Uh, so the 30s, they were very, very active. And the, the next big wave of protests was in the 60s, yeah. that artists really responded to the Vietnam War um, in tremendous tremendous ways, doing posters, doing painting, sculpture that was against... And women's, women's art. And women's art as well, well right. The, the Gorilla Girls. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of group activity. And, right, that was yeah. a little bit later, the Gorilla oh, okay. Girls. But yeah. um, certainly the 60s were a time of social protest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although so cultural protest, right. there was a kind of, already with pop art, um, parodying the, um, so the 50s and... Uh, uh, well, I'm thinking of really more specific protests. Later, yes, certainly. You know, yes. Civil rights movement yeah. and also... Right. Yeah. yeah. How did American art during World War II and just after compare to international mm. art? During the war and immediately well, after. During and just after. Well, I do think that during the war, this idea of art... These, that, should, that, that art should deal with these, quote, tragic, timeless themes began to be more and more prevalent. Um, and then that became the model that other countries adopted. Abstract Expressionism eventually became the dominant international style. Uh, I would think there are two impacts of the war, Second World War, on art that struck me. Number one is with the Nuremberg trials and the revelation of the Holocaust and the camps, there is the debate of what can art, what is art? Can one make art? I mean, the level of human atrocity uh, delivered by educated people uh, in the European theater, so enormous that uh, the artists debate what, what would art be like after all the claims of the racial mean beauty and behavior have been shattered. Well, I think that's why abstract art came right. to the fore, because right. you could express things abstractly in a way that, that seemed um, simplistic if you were trying to represent an atrocity. It almost uh, demeaned it by representing it. But if you could create an abstract image that would allow the viewer to read his or her own expectations and attitudes into it, you would succeed in creating a sense of uncertainty without the specificity. And I think that uh, right after that's one, I totally agree. And then the other is the question of the victors in the war. So the real victor of the war is America. So American trends and America's emblematic of democracy influences the influence of American art uh, and, the, and the, even the emigres in Europe. And on the other hand, in 48, you have the famous Zhdanov decrees in the Soviet Union where... Stalin attempts to get control of the art and suppress dissident art and push an argument that is a kind of... So the Cold War begins to separate two competing influences in also, art on Europe. Right, and also in Europe, because of, of that the battles were actually took place in Europe. They didn't take place on American soil. So Europe was devastated after the Second World War, as it was after the First World War. The artists were no longer... Um, many of them had died in the war, and it was it was a, a much different kind of climate. America emerged from the war relatively intact. So I know we've touched on this, but we do have this question coming back to us. His work has such a powerful connection with Christian medieval illuminated manuscripts. 
Please speak to how his work evolved to incorporate that image into his themes of Jewish life. He just did it. <laughs> he, did he start because he started early, young, illustrating the Bible? Well, there's a difference between the Bible and Jewish life. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just speaking personally. Uh, that, uh, <laughs> that, uh, that, there are, that you can't actually... The, more. There is something, um, uh, me, except for, you know, some of the illustrations of the young Israeli, you know, Palestinian, you know, the, the Yeshuv, the settlers in Israel, the, somehow Shik's, even as a child, his, you know, the picture of, must be, I don't know, Moses, you know, with his hands spread at the bottom of the, of the Declaration of the Independence of the State of Israel, None of them looked ordinary life to me. I mean, I never thought as a child that somebody was going to jump out of a chic illustration and start a conversation. You know, <laughs> you know, it, it didn't. It it didn't look like it looked imaginary, realistically imaginary. That's why magic realism it wasn't really real. Um, and I guess also the the takeaways that somebody can adopt any kind of style and direct it toward any kind of subject matter. Right. It isn't yeah. as if illuminated. It's a, little, it's a little stereotypical. I don't mean this critically of Schick, but, you know, you know, the, the typology, you know, the old grandfather with the beard, you know, and the Manishtana and the sort of the four questions, the Haggadah, you know, and they, they, they look to me, I mean, let's I say Gustave Doré, it looked to me as a child what the Bible people supposed to look like. Because the Bible people, I didn't think were the people on the Seventh Avenue subway. They were, you know, you know, I mean, you know, Moses wasn't my neighbor, and you know, Ezekiel wasn't didn't live upstairs. Mr. Shapiro lived upstairs, not Ezekiel. So I didn't want them to look like ordinary people. You know, the people I went to synagogue with, they weren't in the Bible, you know. That's why we're reading the Bible, because if they were in the Bible, I would have Lost all interest. So um, <laughs> there was something elevated. So the, the idea that these illustrations are about a world which is connected to something I know, now there's some similarity, but there's something different, is crucial. You follow me? I, 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 I didn't, um, you know, th- there was something hyper-realistically imaginary. And that's what's difficult um, about, about this. Um, you know, the same way as a child, you know, you think about the exodus from Egypt. You know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the people I knew who were leaving Egypt. It was some imaginary ancestor. The same way as, as, as um, you know, there is something, and he feeds into this. And he was trying to create his own myth. Yes, and... Well, but if you look at, at the victim, the ones that, that, that even the Warsaw Ghetto ones, these are, you know, muscular, larger than life. I never met anybody in the elevator like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you, you follow what I'm saying? Yes. So as we are children stared at these things on our walls, we didn't think, I just saw that guy. <laughs> you know, uh, it wasn't realistic. It wasn't realistic. Well, they come close to Popeye. I mean, Popeye's muscles that popped out. Yeah, not, but not the it was, skinny arms, it was, it, but the you know definitely the very muscular. Church. Somehow I never aspired to Popeye, <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, I do think there's something. He was not 
I mean, Feininger was a cartoonist. He was not that sense. He was not a caricaturist. These, because it was illustrated manuscript, it was, there was something inherently idealized. Even the, the victims are idealized. There's something aestheticized about it. They're not ordinary. But um, even their faces have mu- are very muscular. Very precise, yeah. yeah. The, the one criticism which you, which you mentioned as well earlier, that it's not a criticism, but... I mean, let's take the evil. So if you look at the character of Mussolini, there's a great thing about um, warning you against venereal disease. There's a, one which he did about using condoms as a kind of way to fight the axis. This is our next program. Yeah, it's, it's, in, it's, in, the, it's in the exhibit. Um, yeah, so, and um, there are the three bad guys. There's Mussolini, Hirohito, and, and, and Hitler, and... Um, and it's, um, so the evil, he's very successful because evil is hard to imagine. Good is hard to imagine, but, you know, one can feel it in oneself. Evil is more dangerous, and depicting evil visually is hard to do. And it's hard to do in music. It's the best music. That's why the good guys in operas are dull. Uh, the bad guys, like Don Giovanni, are really interesting. Um, because it's inspiring, because evil has a much wider and more difficult, psychologically more compelling avenue of writing. And he's very successful in making the evil look worse. I mean, I don't like the way Hitler looks, and I know he's evil, but when I see it through the eyes of Arthur Schick, I'm truly shocked. These are grotesquely evil figures. In that sense, he's very powerful as a character. I don't know. I'm I'm thinking about early turn-of-the-century cartoons in America that caricatured Teddy Roosevelt or Rockefeller. It's not dissimilar. It's not, not sure that if you were to see it and mm. not know that it was Hitler, that you would think evil. Oh, you I would think evil, yeah. Uh, but I mean, the big, fat, greedy capitalist they're, they're, with the cigar they're, in his they're mouth? They're caricatures. They're yeah. ludicrous, but they're, they're not evil. They're, they're ridiculous. But no, I think that what his depiction is horrifying. I do think there's something horrifyingly sinister. He does capture the sinister aspect of it, at least to my eyes. So I think it's time to end. And I thought we'd end on a very high note. Um, this is a, a uh, illuminated, one of his illuminated portraits of, and he illuminated Thomas Jefferson's oath. How does that sound? Thomas Jefferson? Oath. Yes, His oh, oath. Yes, yes. 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 he oath, has a yes. portrait of... Um, this is a watercolor and gouache. He, uh, illumi- it's, he was the illuminator of Jefferson's pledge against tyranny, and it says, I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. And I thought we might end on that yeah. note and come back and do something else. We don't know what next year, but make sure you're on our list and you get our brochure um, because this wonderful team, husband and wife, will be returning. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.